following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Hey everybody, it's good to see you this evening. How's that fast going? Pretty good? Amen. All right, cool. Two of you are fasting. That's awesome. <laughs> it's going good at our house. Getting closer to Jesus and closer to one another. We're enjoying it. Enjoying uh, just time together and time with Him. It's, it's a blessed thing. So I praise God for it. I'm glad for all of you. Glad that we're here together to study God's Word. And that's what we're here to do. Uh, if you're new around here and you're not sure who I am, I'm, I'm Vince. I'm one of the pastors here. I do most of the Bible teaching. And that's what I stood up here to do tonight. So let's get going. If you would, uh, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 19, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6. I really want to read more than that, uh, but I know if I do, I'm going to start preaching it, so I'm restraining myself for God's glory and your good, okay? Uh, So what are we doing? Tonight we are starting a four-week series. It's called Marriage Exposed. We're taking a raw look into covenant and conflict. And so to start that, I want to jump right in with some valuable tips that Natalie and I have learned over the last 16 years of marriage. So the first is this, to the wives. Wives, if you cannot get your husband to fix something, go grab some tools and act like you're about to do it yourself. And watch him jump into action. It's tip number one. Husbands. In 98% of clinical studies, it's been shown that your wife will not start an argument with you while you are cleaning. (laughs) This has been studied by scientists in lab coats, all right? Just trust it. Wives, if he has a bad attitude and you want to shake him out of it, just ask him this question. Do you even remember what today is? Even if it's nothing, we scare easily, I promise. That will at least adjust our attitude and get us out of that. Husbands, quit, please, with the back and forth. I don't know, where do you want to eat? Just be a man and pick a place. So she can tell you she doesn't want to go there. (laughs) At least at that point, you are narrowing down the options. Okay? 16 years of marriage, that's what I got for you. Let's pray. I'm going to send you home, okay? Uh, I want to just speak a quick word to those who are not married uh, and, and don't intend to be, or those who are not yet married and want to be. We know here that our culture at large, and sometimes even more so in the church, those who are unmarried are, are seemingly seen as inferior or like something is, is wrong with them, um, almost as if the ability to get married is a rite of passage or some kind of proof that you're worth something. And please hear me say this, that is not the picture that the scriptures paint whatsoever, and it is not what we believe here at Love City. Whether someone is intentionally unmarried for the purpose of undivided service and devotion to Jesus, or they are maximizing their current season of being unmarried for his purposes, we know that you are a vital part of the family of God, and you are to be honored and esteemed as such. So I want you to know that. 
And even though this sermon series is focused on the covenant of marriage, much of what we're going to discuss, it's going to translate directly to other types of relationships with people and even your relationship with Jesus. And also, just a sidebar, marriage is such a crucial part of God's overall plan of redemption. We see that in the scriptures, that it's important for all of us to know how to think about it biblically. Okay? Now, with more resources available on the subject of marriage than someone could read, watch, or listen to in a lifetime, you may be wondering why we would take the time to do this. Instead of just referring people to some of the solid stuff that is already available. And that is a good question, if you're wondering it. And the answer is actually multifaceted. And I'm going to give you some things to think about. The first is that, though this sermon series will be available to the public, just like all of the Bible teaching that we do here, it is primarily geared towards serving and instructing this local church body. So that means we're able to tailor what we cover to some of the specifics of our context. And that's really important. The second is that the trends and statistics in the culture around us are constantly changing, which means the questions that people are asking are constantly changing. For a long time, a 50% divorce rate both inside and outside of the church was often quoted. Uh, but this number has actually gone down about 18% according to the CDC. Now, Unfortunately, we could be tempted to cheer there, and maybe there's some reasons tucked into that research for, for encouragement, but it doesn't seem like this reduction is due to a re robust recovery of biblical and covenantal thinking and practice. Uh, the Pew Research Center reports that cohabitation among unmarried couples has gone up 29% in the same time period. Okay, so we've had an 18% reduction roughly in the last 10 years in divorces, but 29% increase in cohabitation in the same time period. So at least one of the factors affecting the de decrease in divorce is also a decrease in marriage. In addition, there is a reason that there are so many resources available on marriage. It is both beautiful and burdensome. It's marvelous and it's messy, so it can be challenging and complicated of a subject to tackle. And, and we can't cover everything in one sermon series. No one can, or in one book, or blog, or whatever the resource is. Uh, we actually have a sermon series from a couple years ago. It's called Holy Reflections. And it looks at some of these same themes from a different angle. And so we would offer that to you as well, to check out as well. It's in our sermon archive on the internet. Interwebs, there it is. Um, the last thing I'm going to say is that this sermon series in some ways, in particular, this sermon series is a response to something we've noticed here over the last year or so. It seems like there has been an increased frequency and fervor from the forces of darkness in their attempts to attack and undermine marriages. And perhaps this is just something that we have experienced here, but we suspect it is a larger trend seen throughout the body of Christ. Again, because marriage is such an integral part of God's overall plan of redemption, it would make sense that those opposed to God's plan of redemption would attack there. So that means this sermon series is our equivalent of Jesus laying the smack down on Satan in the wilderness when he tried to tempt him. So what we're going to do is we're going to take the next four weeks and we're going to take 
the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and we're going to make war against the foolish lies that cause confusion and harm in the hearts and minds of those who want to serve Jesus well with their marriage. Amen. So that brings us to these scriptures, Matthew 19, verses 1 through 6. I hope you turn there. If you don't have a Bible with you, the sermons will be on the screen. If you don't own a Bible, please let us know. We have tons. We'd like to give you one for free. We don't want anything from you. Just want to give you a Bible. Okay? Here we go. Matthew 19, 1 through 6. When Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Praise God for his word. Amen. There's more to be said on the subject. Jesus continues there. But like I said, we're going to keep ourselves to verses 1 through 6. And in the subsequent weeks, we will continue on there. There's, there's enough here <laughs> to keep us busy tonight. Okay? So we want to start with the basics and not take anything for granted. Now, some of these basics, for some of you, it might seem elementary. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to pay close attention to the foundation of these seemingly basic truths. So you don't just know what they are, but you know where they come from, and then you can also teach them to others, okay? Like I said, we need to know how to think about this biblically. We need to be, we need to be proficient enough in thinking about this biblically to be able to apply biblical thinking to different situations and to help others do the same, to be able to take them to the scriptures and show them why it is we believe what the Bible says about marriage, okay? So we're going to start with this question, start at the basics. What is marriage? Now, before we answer that, we need to make an important distinction, okay? When we ask the question, what is marriage, we have to make sure we are clear about the lens with which we are answering that question from. Are we talking about a biblical God-ordained definition, or are we talking about the definition of the governing authorities? And I think a helpful way to make this distinction is to be careful with the terms that we use. Now, Christians cannot exclusively claim the word marriage because its etymology is not exclusive to biblical usage. That means the Bible is not the only place where the word marriage is used. It's actually traced down through Old English, 11, 1200, and then before that it's, it comes from a French root, and then before that it comes from a Latin root, but it's not exclusive to the scripture. So we can't just grab that and say, okay, that's our word only, right? You understand that? Respect etymology. Don't try to get frisky about that, okay? It's important. We can't grab just marriage, but it does seem appropriate for us to claim the term covenant marriage, Okay? A marriage covenant formed under God's authority and for his purposes is different from a civil marriage or a civil union, which is formed under the government's authority and for their purposes. Okay? Now, I, I realize that some of you may be thinking, here we go again, Pastor Vince splitting hairs over language. I get it, that I'm a curmudgeon. I understand that I have a reputation as such. But I promise you there's a reason. It's really important how we speak affects how we think. And how we speak reflects how we think. 
Okay, it's super important that we're cautious about that, especially when it comes to these things. I'm going to submit to you that this difference is so fundamentally important to this discussion that even some states have recognized the difference. There is actually a legal on the books distinction of covenant marriage as an option before people get married that they can opt to take in three states that I could find, Arizona, Arkansas, and Louisiana. Okay, here is some of the distinctives and difference of, of a covenant marriage underneath the law in those three states. Prior to entering into a covenant marriage, a couple must attend premarital counseling sessions, emphasizing the nature, purposes, and responsibilities of marriage, and must sign a statement declaring that a covenant marriage is for life. In contrast to no-fault divorces, more lenient requirements for non-covenant marriages, a spouse in a covenant marriage desiring a divorce may first be required to attend marital counseling. A spouse desiring a divorce must also prove that one of the following is true. The other spouse has committed adultery. The other spouse has committed a felony. The other spouse engaged in substance abuse. The other spouse has physically or sexually abused the spouse or a child. The spouses have been living separately for a minimum amount of time specified by law, one or two years, depending on the law of the state. That was surprising to me to find out that that's on the books in three states. I think it's really interesting. If you can opt in uh, at the beginning, you can later on, you can, you can go and say, I, I want to change my designation to a covenant marriage, kind of putting the, the restraint of the law of the land upon uh, you and your spouse in terms of how you go about that. I just, I, my response to that was, wow, didn't see that coming, but uh, obviously, as I read that set of distinctives to you, they're a little looser here than the scriptures in terms of, you know, the boundaries. And, and this state-ordained covenant marriage distinction, it's not the same as a covenant marriage before God, still not the same thing. But the whole point that I'm getting at, the reason I showed you that, is that even legislators in those three states understand there is a difference. And they use that term covenant marriage to make their distinction. Okay? So... This little seeming rabbit trail about the language we use to describe marriage actually leads us to the definition we're looking for. At its most basic level, if we are talking about a God-ordained biblical marriage, then we are talking about a covenant. Marriage is a covenant, okay? Now, modern people don't use the word covenant a whole lot, which is actually helpful for us because that means there's less work for us to do trying to undo misconceptions. Unlike, and you know this is a hobby horse for me, the word love, for example, which has a biblical definition but has been watered down to a junk drawer term for emotional affection, which in turn causes a lot of confusion for people trying to understand what it means that God is love or that he loves us or that we're called to love him and love one another, right? Now, one of the best ways to understand what a covenant is, is to contrast it with another common agreement that more people have experience with, and that is a contract. Okay, so many people, when they think of marriage, they think in terms of contract, because covenant is a bit alien to many of us. It's foreign. Uh, it, it is exclusive to the scriptures, and so it's not as common. So I'm going to give you three characteristics of a contract, and then we're going to contrast those with characteristics of a covenant so that we can see where they don't line up. And these distinctions and these differences are important. First characteristic of a contract. Contracts are often made for a limited period of time. Most marriage ceremonies involve the phrase, till death do us part, 
And uh, unfortunately, many couples interpret that as we're committed to each other if this relationship continues to be mutually beneficial. That <clears throat> is also, that's okay in a contract, right? If you make a contract with somebody, you're going to provide these goods and services. I'm going to pay you this amount at, at this time. If anybody breaches their side of the contract, that's the point of the contract, right? So you can say, mm, I'm out. You broke your side, okay? Covenant's different. Contracts are based on an if and then mentality. If you do this, then I will do this, okay? And that's, that, that's not strange. That's not weird. That is how contracts work. Contracts uh, are meant for protecting the parties involved, okay? So there's an if-then mentality. Contracts are motivated by the desire to get something, okay? Typically, when you go into a contract with somebody, you're not... You're not signing a contract because you are overwhelmed with a desire to bring something to the table and be a blessing to this person on the other end of the contractual agreement. That is not typically how it goes. However, that does describe, as weird as it may sound, the way we should come to the table of a covenant. Okay? Covenant characteristics, in, in contrast to those contract uh, characteristics, a covenant, like a contract, is an agreement between two or more people, but the nature of the agreement is different. And I'm going to give you some characteristics that we see uh, laid out in the Bible. So first of all, covenants are initiated for the benefit of the other person. The whole point of a covenant is, I'm coming to this thing for your benefit. That's My primary concern is for you and not for me. And I'm going to show you examples of this and, and why we're saying this this is what characterizes a covenant. It's for the benefit of the other person. In covenant relationships, people make unconditional promises. Remember, a contract is, if you do this, then I'll do this. In a covenant, we have unconditional promises, right? Like, for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. Uh, things may get bad, but I'm still going to do this thing I'm saying that I'm going to do. You may not do your part, but I'm still going to do mine. Okay? Unconditional promises. Covenant relationships are based on steadfast love. Steadfast love refuses to just focus on the negative aspects of someone's spouse. And steadfast love is a choice. In stark contrast to the way most of our culture thinks about love, that they can fall into or fall out of love. Love, clearly, from a scriptural perspective, is a choice. Covenant relationships view commitments is permanent within the context of that covenant. Covenant relationships require confrontation and forgiveness. Okay? If you're in a contract, someone breaches the contract, you don't have to argue with them, you just get to bail. That's what the contract provides for you to be able to do. Unless you're going to pretend your spouse is perfect or bail when they're not, then loving, grace-infused conflict is an essential part of a biblical marriage covenant. Notice, don't, if somebody leaves from here and says, Pastor Vince said arguing is an essential part of marriage. Let's get down. You did not listen because I said grace-infused. Biblical style conflict. Okay? That doesn't mean you get to go home and start shooting off your mouth. You have no permission for that. Okay? Amen. <laughs> now, another reason... Taking care to distinguish between biblical God-ordained marriage covenants and, and, and civil marriages. This will seem like a bit of an aside, but we're here and we're touching it and we need to. Okay? 
One reason this is important, distinguishing between biblical God-ordained marriage covenants and civil marriages, is that it will help us speak more circumspectly and intelligently about the issue of same-sex civil unions. Okay? We see here in the scriptures we read in Matthew 19, 1 through 6, that Jesus makes no bones about what marriage is from God's perspective. Okay? He hearkens back to the words of Genesis. Okay? And, and notice, what did the Pharisees come and say? Did they say, hey, talk to us about the origins of marriage? No. They came with what? Trying to test him to see, hey, uh, can a man divorce his wife for any reason? And so of all the things Jesus could have said to answer this question, where does he go? What does he do? What does he say? It's very interesting what he does. Of all the things Jesus could have said in this answer about marriage and divorce, Jesus talks about God establishing gender in his created order and then taking those two opposite genders and joining them together as one flesh. That's when questioned about marriage, that's where Jesus goes. Okay, And when we're gonna, if we're going to try to understand and answer the question, what is marriage, from a biblical lens, quick poll, who would you want to go ask to get a good answer about that? If you could ask anybody about what marriage is like from God's perspective, and you could pick one person to go ask about it, anybody in here brave enough to give me a name on who we should ask? Go ahead. Jesus might be a great option. I don't know, God in the flesh, the eternal one, was there for the whole shebang. Yep. I'm cool with that. I feel real strong about that. Okay, good. We're going to talk to Jesus about it. Well, we are. We get to. Thank you for these foolish Pharisees that thought they were going to trap him in a test. It's very awesome that Jesus goes straight to the word, right? Because this was a big debate among the rabbis of the day. And there was a bunch of, you know, kerfuffle about it. And so they were going to get him hemmed up because they figured, well, if he answers the way one team does or the way the other team does, we'll get the other team mad at him. And then, you know, we'll create a bunch of drama. And Jesus was so good just going straight to the word and skipping the drama and smacking these guys down. So it just makes me happy. All right. Uh, so from this, from Jesus' words on the matter, the first thing we need to say here is, from God's perspective, that the kind of covenant marriage God ordains, okay, remember, we made a, a big distinction here. There is a, there is a biblical God-ordained marriage, covenant marriage, and then there is what the state does. And those are two totally separate things. But on, on God's side of things, he has made plain in his word and from the mouth of Christ that marriage that he ordains is between one man and one woman. Okay? But we also need to understand at the same time that we say that, we need to understand there is a separation between the church and the state and that this is a good thing. The church is not supposed to rule the government and the government doesn't rule the church. They are two separate entities, both recognized as legitimate by the word of God. Is that right or wrong? That's right. So this means what the government does or allows when it comes to civil marriages or civil unions is not something we can or should try to control as a church. It is also not the government's job to force everyone to adhere to the moral standards set forth by God's word. Now, some of you are getting shifty in your seat. Some of you aren't liking what I'm saying, and that's okay, because I want you to think about this. If that's you, if you're like, ooh, I don't know if I like what he's saying. If you don't like that, just imagine you lived in a majority Muslim country, and they forced you to follow all the teachings of the Quran. How would that sit with you? There's a reason that there's a church and there's a government. And God's okay with that. 
and has said so expressly in his word multiple times. Amen. God-ordained covenant marriages are between one man and one woman. The government should not try to force us to change his definition, and we should not try to force his definition onto civil unions which are not based on his word or on his teachings. I realize I've just ticked everybody off. And I'm perfectly okay with that. But I also understand this is a complex issue and you have voices coming in from all different angles. And so if you have questions or you need to discuss this further or you think I'm missing something, I'm gonna, I will hang out up here after the service. If you want to talk to me about it, I would be happy to do that. And it, it won't be confrontational. We, we can talk through this. We need to. We need to know how to think about this. This is a pressing issue of our day. We need to be able to think biblically about it, not the way our favorite news outlet tells us to think about it. Amen. I thought you would amen there. <laughs> yeah, buddy. Also, if you don't want to have that conversation with me here, reach out to me this week. It's fine. I'm willing and, and able and, and thankful for the chance to walk with people through this. I know it's complicated. <clears throat> we might make it more complicated than it is sometimes, but it, it sure seems that way. It seems tough to work through. Okay. Now, you might be thinking, but everything we just read there from Jesus, Jesus didn't say that marriage is a covenant. Where are you getting that from? And if you are thinking that, I, I, I promise you, I mean this, I am glad that you're engaged in thinking critically through this. Don't just take anything for granted. Jesus didn't say the word covenant here, Okay. But what Jesus did do is he pointed back to Adam and Eve as a reference point for how to understand biblical marriage. So I'm going to read you an excerpt of what he's quoting here, and we'll see what we find. See if we find covenantal language. See if we understand why the overall understanding, and, and, and I, you know, when I'm boiling down for you what marriage is as a definition that we're coming to this word covenant. Okay, so I'm in Genesis 2, and I'm going to start at 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the sky, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Amen. Okay, so what I, what I want to show you, I, I kind of read you all that for context, but where I, where I want to come back to is this verse 24. It says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife. That's how the New American Standard Bible says it. If you have a King James Version or you memorize this verse in the King James, you would, you'd have this word cleave that was put there. And what that means is, is like gluing together. So this join together, the word, the word cleave, the, the Hebrew word there is, is to glue together. So God glues together the man and the wife. And that's, that's really the point of what we came here to see. Jesus said, so they are, they are no longer two but one flesh. 
What therefore God joined together, let no man separate. And so this leaving and this cleaving, this joining together, this supernatural thing that in Ephesians it starts to talk about that how, how all this actually comes down, this one flesh situation, it's a mystery. Some of this is in the realm of God's knowledge and God's doing, but it is God who joins a husband and wife together. And so let not man separate. And what that shows us is God is involved in this joining together, this gluing process of the husband and wife. So that means you don't just have here two people autonomously making a decision that now we're going to change our relational status God is involved in a covenantal biblical marriage. He glues people together. There is a supernatural element to what is happening. And it is above and beyond just what we do in our own decision-making faculties and, 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 and the vows that we make and all that. God is involved, and that is part of what makes this clearly something different than other relational connections. Okay? That's what we came here to see. It's not just two people making an agreement, but God actively involved in joining them together. This is more than a human contract. Marriage is a covenant. But you might be thinking, well, I listened very closely while you were reading Genesis there, and I still haven't heard the word covenant next to marriage. I hope you are thinking that. And I will say this. The Bible's clearest indicators that marriage is a covenant are not when it is expressly said. It's actually what we've already seen in Genesis and what we're going to see in Ephesians 5. But there are a few direct references that tie them together for those of you that are, are more literal and need that. I'm, I'm kidding. It's good that you need that. I want you to pay attention. I want you to think critically. Don't, well, the preacher said marriage is a covenant, so I guess that's what it is. No, man. You, you, need, you need to, if I wasn't didn't have the forethought to go find this for you and read it to you right now, I would hope you would go find it. Don't just take my word for it, because I'm making some big claims here about what covenant means. Am I not? Sure am. All right. So in Malachi 2.14, uh, a man is told that uh, his spouse is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. That's Malachi 2.14. Proverbs 2.17 describes a wayward wife who has left the partner of her youth and ignored the covenant she made before God. And so here in two different instances, we see the word covenant tied to the idea of marriage. The deepness and the richness is not even so much in the word being next to covenant and marriage being together in the same scripture. The deepness and the richness of it is revealed more vibrantly when we look at Genesis 2. And I just I just opened the door and peeked into that room with you guys. I don't have time to take you in there and run around because we will be here a while, okay? So there's that. And then, and then when we look at Ephesians 5, we'll do the same thing. We'll peek in the room, and then you, know, you, can, you can take it from there. And as we go on subsequently through the weeks, we'll look deeper. But the, the, real, the real beauty and depth and clarity of the connection of, of covenant and marriage and that marriage is a covenant according to God's definition is uh, it's, it's more... In, Inferred is not the right word, but it's, it's not so much when it's the words are right next to each other in a scripture and plain like that. It's when we see uh, the beauty of like what I'm about to read you. So I gave you Genesis 2. Now I'm going to, as promised, uh, take you to Ephesians 5. So this is starting in verse 25. It says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Right away, just, just pay attention to Paul explaining marital roles and what he uses as the example. Where's he at already? Husbands, love your wives like Christ loves the church, okay? This is where we're getting into the depth and the beauty of how these are both covenants. 
so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Somebody else said that. Yep. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. And so what, what we have plainly is a, is a direct connection here between marriage and what ha- has happened between Christ and the church. And what has happened between Christ and the church, there, there is no question that the, the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation are dripping with this covenant language to help us understand that this is what God has done with man. He made a covenant with Abraham. He made a covenant with Moses and the people of Israel in the wilderness. He made a covenant with David. And he made a covenant with us through Christ. I didn't forget about Noah. I just, you know, we'll throw him in there. He made a covenant with Noah too, didn't he? Rainbow and all. But then he made a covenant with us through Christ. And that was the point of Christ's covenant, to make a, coming to make a covenant with us. And we see in no uncertain terms in the mind of the apostle as he tries to help us understand the beauty and the depth of this marital relationship. He has no problem comparing the relationship that husbands and wives have to the relationship of Christ himself in his church. Woo, you can think about that a long time and you still won't be at the end of it. Pull on that ball of yarn all you want. There will be more to pull. Amen. Now, I know for some of you, okay, this, it it may seem pretty intense, okay, that the way that we're hammering down on this idea of covenant, especially when lots of people think more about the jubilant festivity of a wedding than, than the blessed but sometimes brutal work of covenant keeping in marriage. When you talk to them about marriage and, and the whole thing, most times, a lot of times, people are thinking about the, the wedding. They're not thinking about the marriage. But, but I, I think if we will look at God cutting covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, we will understand just how serious this is. There's a reason we need to have an understanding of covenant and what that looks like and be able to take that and transpose it in, onto our understanding of marriage and let it, let it not only govern the way we participate and, and act in our marriages, but also just the way we think about it, the way we explain it to those that maybe don't understand. These are the things we need to familiarize. We are covenant people. We need to understand covenant and, and this, this will help us. Um, I'm, I'm going to read you a fairly decent portion here, okay, of Genesis 15. If not the whole thing, yeah, maybe the whole thing. <laughs> I, got, <laughs> I got the microphone, now everyone's going to see if you try to leave. So here we go. Genesis 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham. I'm a fast reader. All these, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I'm a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me, since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look towards the heavens and count the stars, if you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. 
then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned to him as righteousness. Abram believed in the Lord. God reckoned it to him as righteousness, just to be clear. And he said to him, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. He said, oh, Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these things to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abram drove them away. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years, but I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete." It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch, which passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land. From the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite, and the Kenizzite, and the Kadmonite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Rephaim, and the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. Ooh, buddy. What did I just read you? Well, I just read you all of Genesis 15, but why did I read you that? Because that right there, dear friends, is God cutting a covenant with Abram. And I'm going to point out some things to you, okay? So you heard that when, when Abram starts to ask God, well, how, how do I know this is going to happen? God says, okay, go get me three-year-old heifer, go get the goat, you know, tells a bunch of animals. They cut those in half, and here's, here's what's going on. So when a covenant was being cut in that time. Typically how it would go, you, you, would, you would cut those animals in half and you would, you would lay, lay one half on each side. And then, and then what would happen is typically the lesser of the two, right? So if you've got a king and then somebody that's not a king or whatever, if, if, it was, if you had that situation, typically the person of, of, of lesser you know, social stance or whatever, they would be the one that walks through the pieces. And basically what they're saying is, Okay, let, as I walk through these pieces, we're making this agreement between us. If I don't hold up my end of the bargain, let, let it happen to me what happened to these animals. Okay, so this doesn't, this doesn't go like it normally should, does it though? Because God puts Abram to sleep and does what? He shows up as, as this pot and this torch. I, I don't know what that's all about. I don't know if anybody really does, but that, that's how he shows up. And what does he do? Abram gets put to sleep and God himself passes through the pieces. But here's what's real rad about that. He don't let Abram come through because here's the deal. God already knows Abram can't keep his end of the bargain. We've already proven that, haven't we? But what God goes through and does is he says he passes through the pieces. And basically what that is representing is you aren't going to hold your end of the bargain. I will, but because you're not going to hold your end, let what happened to these animals happen to me. Let me ask you about something. When God sent his own son, an incarnate flesh who lived a perfect life, what happened to him after these Pharisees hemmed him up a few more times? Exactly what happened to those animals happened to him. God makes covenants and he keeps covenants. And he does, when he makes covenant, it's for the benefit of the other. And when he calls us into covenant marriage with one another, it's for the benefit of the other. And you got to understand, dear friends, 
The, the, what, what God has shown us in covenant making and covenant keeping is the model for marriage. And that's why it's intense. And that's why I'm hammering it. And that's why I want you to think about it and not just think about it. I want you to walk it out with your spouse. Because when we do, dear friends, it's one of the ways that God has given us to declare to this world that we belong to him and we are different. I know you're not going to do what you're supposed to do. And I'm gonna, I'll, pay, I'll take the hit for that. Come on, that's our Jesus. The bridegroom. <laughs> Christ in the church. You guys seeing all the dots connect? I know you don't see it all. I don't see it all either, but I see enough of them. Woo! To know that I will, for the rest of my life, be able to seek with diligence to serve and love my wife better, and I will never exhaust the potential to grow in that area. I see that for sure. Because there's no way I'm loving her as perfect and as good and as faithfully as Jesus has loved me yet. The way my bridegroom has loved his bride. He's been good to us, saints. And he set a bar that leaves us no excuses. Amen. Now, because of the power of that example, and I could have mm, held you for three more hours on Genesis 15. I'm just telling you this right now. Mm. But we're not going to. But what I do want to do is I vote that we start having husbands and wives walk through animals cut in half as they make their wedding vows. We're going to put it to a church vote right now. I'm just saying, I think it might help some people. Understand how serious this is. Because even though I sit across from them for four weeks and tell them how serious it is, I, I mean, I've told people, and I, I swear this is true, I wish everybody wore black to weddings instead of funerals. I wish we would switch the attire. Because for a Christian, a funeral is, that woo, that's home going. But you know what? To married people, if you're thinking about it correctly, man, and you're, coven, you're coming with a covenant mindset, you are coming to die. Hey, we might change the whole wedding industry up in here. Black wedding dresses, 2020. <laughs> Hallelujah. The guys already wear black most of the time. What's that mean? <laughs> that he knows? I don't know. Probably not. He don't know, does he? Let me hear from the husbands. He don't know nothing, does he? Not yet. And that's the thing, man. It's <laughs> Okay, I need to let you all go. We got three more weeks. It's okay. I'll get there. Our understanding of biblical covenant marriage flows from the gospel and is one of the greatest reflections of the gospel to the world. And that is why we can't afford to take this lightly. We can't. And so in the coming weeks, we will talk more about features and facets and practicalities of all of this. But for now, may we all, married or unmarried, Live as covenant people to the glory of God. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord, we thank you that you are a covenant-making God and you have made us a covenant people. Lord, we are undeserving of this blessed designation. We are undeserving of the grace and mercy you've poured out on us. But thank you, not only for what you've done in making covenant with us, but the example you've given us. Thank you for showing us 
Not just teaching us, not just telling us, but going first. Thank you, dear God, that you put Abram to sleep and you walked through those pieces that you're willing, have been willing, and are willing to take the hit when we don't live up to our end of the bargain. God, let these principles of mercy and grace translate into our relationships. God, it's not just for married couples. You've told us that we should be a forgiving people. And when Peter tried to impress you and ask you if seven times was good, you said 70 times seven. And so, Lord, may may the grace and the beauty of what you do in covenant and what you've done for us. You went first. You've made us covenant people. You've opened our eyes to the beauty of the possibility of living this way. You've shown us the way. God, help us strengthen us by your empowering grace to just walk after you. You've blazed the trail. You've, you've marked out the path, but God, it's hard because we have sinful, fleshy tendencies, and we want to take vengeance ourselves, and we want to, we want to stake out a little claim of, of making sure we get respected, and we get ours, and, and somebody knows about how special we are and what our needs are and all that. And God, I just, I pray that you would help us, help us to empty ourselves, help us to rid ourselves of all the pride that hurts others and hurts us and and reflects poorly upon you as our God and King. Lord, I just pray for every single marriage of every single family that's a part of Love City Church. God, I just ask that you would, you would supernaturally continue to work, that you would weave into our hearts and minds a covenant mentality. Lord, I ask you to Remind us of what you did with Abram and what you did, Lord Jesus, upon the cross and, and help us not just factually ascend, not just intellectually agree, but God, help us that these things would translate into our behavior and it would soak down into our hearts and change the way we think and the way we speak and the way we treat people, especially the beautiful gift you've given us for those of us who are married. God, I pray for those who are not married on purpose. God, I thank you for them. I honor them and I esteem them as vital parts of the body of Christ. And I thank you for their special ability to focus upon what pleases you and to allocate their time and resources in ways that those who are married cannot. I thank you, God, for the special gift and ability you give them to live that way. We're thankful for them and all that they bring to the body. I thank you for those, God, who who yearn to be married but in this season are not. I ask you to continue, God, to put your purposes uh, ahead of their desires and to see that this season they have, this opportunity they have to seize every single minute of it, knowing that this is not just a waiting period where they're supposed to hold on until they can start their destiny in you, but that right now in this moment, you have a mission for each one of us. God, to know you, to hear your gospel, to receive the good news that we are saved by grace through faith is to be automatically enlisted and brought in as an ambassador of that good news. And so we thank you for doing that. We thank you for including us. Thank you for gifting us and bringing us together as your church, a complimentary set of people with different gifts and abilities. You're building us into a holy house, God. Thank you. Please stir in us a vision of what you're doing. And God, lastly, I just, I just pray a protective blessing over the marriages here. Lord, I, right now I take authority over every demonic force that maybe has tried to attack marriages. Anybody, any demonic force that's been put on post around any marriages, Lord, we, just, we, we bind them in the name of Jesus. And we ask God that you, by your power, that you would crush them, that you would vanquish them. God, I ask you to give us eyes to see. Thank you for the authority you've given us, Lord. 
by the power of your spirit, that we don't have to live afraid or in fear of the forces of darkness, but you've given us authority. You've given us your power. So God, we just thank you for that. Thank you for protection. And we thank you, God, for everything that we've learned in the battle so far. We know that even the hard things, and especially the hard things, you use to shape us and make us more like you. We love you, and we worship you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.